I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group. You're listening to Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. There's a lot of heavy lifting in the sustainable investing space. If you've ever had a chance to listen to past episodes of this podcast, you've probably heard about the shareholder activism of Share Action and the Church Commissioners of England and efforts to apply frameworks like the Just Transition and the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals too. But there's another kind of heavy lifting I'm talking about. The kind required to change the mindset of a corporate culture that had been accustomed to a no-growth, deflationary outlook for three decades, up until only six years ago. Yeah, I'm talking about Japanese corporate governance reform. And look, I'm going to be completely honest with you. This episode is not for the faint of heart. So I've let the interview roll to its full length because for those committed, and I mean truly committed, it's a pretty interesting conversation about how to quantify the value of good governance and why intangible value is actually a pretty powerful proxy for a company's commitment to better ESG practices. To find all this out, I sat down with Dr. Ryohei Yanagi, an author, an expert on Japanese corporate governance reform, and a very good friend. Yanagi-san is visiting professor at Toyo University and visiting professor at Waseda University Graduate School of Accountancy, where he teaches and researches corporate governance, financial strategy, and investor relations. Yanagi-san is also the CFO of Esai, the fifth largest Japanese pharmaceutical company with over 10,000 employees and a listing in the Topics 100. Yanagi-san is an advisor to the Japanese government and the Tokyo Stock Exchange on corporate disclosure and governance. Last but not least, he was selected as the best CFO in Japan's healthcare sector for the last two years by Institutional Investor. Welcome to the show, Yanagi-san. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Jason, for having me. It's my great honor to be here. Fantastic. I'm really looking forward to this episode. Uh, look, you've got one of the most eclectic backgrounds I've ever seen when it comes to sustainable and responsible investment. And, you know, I guess when I think of this concept in Japan called Ikigai, the concept of combining your personal and professional passions into a single focus, I mean, for you around responsible and sustainable investment, um, you seem to exemplify it. Uh, tell me about how that happened. Um, what's the backstory behind your path into this area, particularly now as, as, uh, as author of a new book and as CFO of ASI. Okay. Thank you, Jason, for asking. Actually, my ultimate goal is, you know, it's a beautiful wording, but the contribution to the society, especially, you know, uh, Japanese societies with a lot of uh, latent value. I'd like to unlock the value in Japan to make Japan great again, kind of, you know. But, uh, <laughs> you know, how can I do that? You know, contribution to society, maximization of the value for Japan. I think, uh, you know, there are multifaceted aspects and both sides of the coin. We got to know both sides of the coin. Number one, we got to understand the financial theory and practicing, practicing as a financial strategy to unlock the value. Then I'm in the capacity of the CFO, day in and day out, trying to unlock the value. And another side of the coin is a kind of academic aspect or a governmental advisor aspect to spread that kind of practice or theory to the rest of the corporate Japan so that we got to have the synergistic effect, the spillover effect on the grassroots movement combined together 
we can contribute to the Japanese society or global society by enhancing the value on a, of course, sustainable basis, avoiding the short termism. So we need a kind of academic aspect, theory, and also business practitioners aspect combining both. That's my kind of a sense of self-realization, my, you know, kind of the lifelong, you know, objectives. And I feel very happy for that, sacrificing my time and energies, but uh, contributing to society by uh, this kind of endeavor, uh, you know, motivates me a lot. Well, so that's fair, I'm not right. It sounds like a more than worthwhile uh, mm-hmm. sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about your book. Mm-hmm. This just came out in May. It's called mm-hmm. Corporate Governance and Value Creation mm-hmm. in Japan. Obviously, the title says a bit about what it's about, mm-hmm. but uh, give us more of a, of a background of, of why this came to be and, and what your thesis uh, in the book is. Okay. Thank you, Jason, for asking. Actually, I published 12 books in Japan in Japanese. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Every single year, I published them. <laughs> one book at least through Nikkei or Toyo Keizai, Chuo Keizai, such a big publishing companies in Japan. But actually, this book, you know, Corporate Governance and Bioculation in Japan by Supringa is my first English book whereby I would like to pitch my, you know, assertion to the rest of the world with English-speaking communities so that we could have the more impactful synergistic effect going forward to unlock the value in Japan. Then in this book, I, my assertion is pretty much simple, you know, clarify the value destruction in the past. We experienced the lost decades. Why? I explained the root cause of the disease dating back to the post-war period and bank governance and others. Now we are facing that kind of transitional period to be the global standard with abenomics corporate governance reforms. Then my value proposition is a kind of the ROE-related, you know, financial strategy. Having said that, my conclusion is the integration of the ROE, financial value, into intangibles or non-financial capitals, thereby creating a win-win situation for global investors and also Japanese companies on a sustained basis. Then how can we integrate or synchronize non-financials with financial value with example, model, empirical research, I, you know, combine them, uh, everything. I, I'm sure I kind of pitched a kind of very convincing evidence to sustain this kind of win-win model. That's my conclusion. Got it. So I want to put a pin Mm-hmm. on the issue of ROE mm-hmm. um, for later in the conversation because I, I do think the the point about Japanese corporate governance reform mm-hmm. and what is happening is a really important theme, thread, whatever you call it, um, to discuss. Why is it so important, particularly since Prime Minister Abe's election in, in 2012? Okay, you know, we, we get to talk about, like I said, root cause of the disease Actually, you know, different history of the capitalism, uh, you know, having an impact on the corporate Japan even now. After World War II, we lost everything. We started from the scratch. There was no wealthy, you know, capital investors or, uh, you know, fund providers. Instead, Japanese government, Minister of Finance, stood up utilizing a commercial bank, thereby offering lending. So we call it bank-led governance or debt governance, 
providing the bank loans, making the cross-share holdings, and control the corporate Japan. Then they concentrate on the mass production based upon lifetime employment, promotion by seniority, then thereby achieving miraculous rapid economic growth back in the 70s or 80s. Having said that, after the collapse of the Babylon economy around the 1990s, banks cannot afford to sustain the corporate Japan, you know, then they unwind and cross share holding. Instead, foreign institutional holding is going up from around 5% to currently 30%. 30% of the corporate Japan is owned by foreigners as of now. It means we got to, you know, cater to the international standard, you know, shareholder governance. So we are now migrating or transition from bank governance to shareholder governance and accepting you know, global capitalism or co- global corporate governance. With that knowledge, finally Shinzo Abe stood up back in 2012, and in order to achieve the growth strategy catering to the global capitalism or shareholders' demand, we were embarked on uh, corporate governance reform, three pillars, corporate governance code, stewardship code, and ITO review, where I was the one of the drafting members. Japanese corporate governance reform clearly borrows from a lot of international practices. As you mentioned, the mm-hmm. Japanese uh, stewardship code borrows pretty heavily from the uh, UK stewardship code, as mm-hmm. an example. Mm-hmm. Um, but where else do you think Japanese corporate governance reform begins? Um, and, and I would ask that um, looking at a couple factors. Um, does it begin in terms of... Uh, Board representation, the Tokyo Stock Exchange has really tried to open up uh, board representation to make it more independent. Um, does it start at education uh, with something like the Ito Review, you know, and, and the work that you've done around mm-hmm. understanding uh, financial metrics like ROE, return on equity, a little bit better? Um, or does it start more fundamentally around leadership mm-hmm. Um for instance, someone like Professor Ito, or someone like yourself, or, or the uh, competitive, mm-hmm. I think, committee that the METI had, had established. Okay, I think my answer is, uh, you know, kind of the mixture of uh, those you mentioned, but uh, simply put, it's kind of the government-led reforms, and Shinzo Abe's administration, together with bureaucrat, METI, FSA, and TSE, these officials are taking lead, and the Japanese corporate are inclined to follow the government instruction. That is a very basic uh, background, and the purpose of these corporate governance reforms are attributable to actually value creation, not a supervision or monitoring of the corporate executive. First priority is value creation, enhancement of the corporate value, which is kind of unique and differentiate Japan from the rest of the world in terms of the corporate governance reform, where basically started from the supervision or monitoring or risk management. But we place first priority on value creation for shareholders and also all the stakeholders. Toward that goal, a multifaceted aspect were pursued by, as you mentioned, TSE, FSA, corporate governance, binding Japanese company to institute at least two outside directors, and educational aspect, no penalty, no mandatory power, but uh, it will review 
recommended Japan should seek at least 8% of the ROE with some textbook type of the explanation. And the, of course,、uh, besides government officials or、uh, politicians,、uh, professors like、uh, Mr. Ito and myself are、uh, you know, making a lot of educational seminars and grassroots activities. With that kind of effort, you know, if you compare 2012 state with the、uh, current status quo, stock price more than doubled, ROE enhanced from 4 5% range to 9% range, and also nowadays. 90% of the first section listed c o m p a n y on the TSA adopted at least two outside directors, which were unthinkable in, you know, 10 years ago. So we made a dramatic makeover. Having said that,、uh, my caveat is we are still in the middle of, you know, tenacious,、uh, long way to achieve international standard. For example, you know, in terms of the border independence, even after the Venomics reform, our you know, total border independence or ratio of the independent directors vis a vis total border members is roughly 10 to 20%, while lagging behind the international standard of the more than 50% of the directors being independent. And also, majority independent board,、uh, you know, it means board with Majority of the directors being outside independent、uh, directors accounts for only, only 2% of the total listed company, even today, like Azai, Sony kind of exception. So we are you know, still in the middle of the board of independence. And also, ROE,、uh, despite the fact that, that ROE is improving from 4% to 9%, still lag behind the double digit numbers. Of the UK or US level. According to the global investor survey, which I conducted, still more than half of the global investors are not satisfied with Japan's corporate governance status. Yanagi san,、mm-hmm. um, maybe for a moment you could explain for、mm-hmm. any, anyone in the audience who, who、um, doesn't come from a finance background, why is ROE such a powerful indicator? And, you know, if it is, why has Japan overlooked it until recently?、Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a very, you know,、uh, important question. Simply put, ROE is proxy for shareholders' return. Namely, TSR, total shareholders' return, including capital gain and income gain. You know, Jason,、uh, in retrospect, if you had invested in US stock 30 years ago, how much did you earn annually? Guess what? Actually, your yield would be roughly 15%, including dividend, because during that Course of the period, average ROE per annum in the US was roughly 15%. On the flip side, if you had invested in Japan stock, what would you have achieved is only 5% yield, including dividend, because during that period, Japan's average ROE was only 4-5%. Likewise, on the ultra long term period, Shareholders' return, TSR, is being converged with level of ROE. I have lots of empirical evidence to achieve that. So, unconsciously or consciously, global investors know 
their return is totally correlated to ROE. That's why, according to my global investor survey, 90% of the global investors say the most important KPI for shareholder value creation is ROE. So, the big question then, what does it mean for、mm. Japan、uh, for the future? Because when I look at Jap-、uh, Japan's ROE over the last well, 30 years, 40、mm-hmm. years even, I mean, it, it was as high as 11 or 12%.、Mm-hmm. It was as low for a long time,、mm-hmm. uh, as low as 4%. And it has continued to trend up. It's now,、mm-hmm. you know, a little bit more than 9%. And so,、mm-hmm. you know, I'm part of your investor survey. When you send that out,、um, you know, I, I sort of have this 8% ROE、mm-hmm. idea. Fixed in my mind just because the cost of uh, uh, capital is relatively low,、mm. uh, particularly in Japan.、Mm. Um, but, but I guess I'm wondering you know, it feels like something not just culturally in terms of the awareness of ROE has changed, but business practices have changed.、Mm. Governance seems to be a tailwind driving that.、Mm. Um, what do you think this forebodes for? Uh, continued improvement in ROE、um, for Japan? Or, on the other hand, is it just a cyclical upturn that could sort of fall away、mm-hmm. just as easily?、Mm-hmm. Okay,、uh, probably this is a complex question, and my answer is yes and no. To some extent, yes,、uh, this kind of the dramatic makeover of ROE from 4% to 8%, 9% in the last five, six years is partially attributable to. Forex situation, devaluation of the Japanese yen, boosting、uh, top line for the export oriented、uh, industries like auto, and also some cyclical economic uh, booming uh, boosted uh, ROE. But、uh, on the flip side, it should be noted that the consciousness of corporate management team is getting changed thanks to the Abenomics corporate governance reform. Especially ROE 8% guideline touted by Ito Review and myself, actually. And in accordance with my global investor survey, in the last 10 years in a row, you know, largest answer was 8% for the assumption of the cost of equity for global investors. So, in other words, 8% is minimum required rate of return or opportunity cost for global investors when it comes to the Japan investing. And the 8% threshold, empirical research shows multiple regression model and others can prove cost of equity attributable to Japan equity is 8%. So, this kind of the educational press,、uh, process.、Uh, t- You know, having influencing on the mindset of the Japanese people. You know, it's kind of, you know, stereotype, but Japan is not for money.、Hmm. Japan is not, not for money, but for shame. Then government s a y 8% is the minimum ROE. If you cannot achieve 8% of the ROE on a long term period, it's a shame on you. Then a lot of corporate managers, Why our ROE is so low? Let's discuss how can we achieve that. Then unwinding cross shareholding, increasing the dividend, and making a little bit more cost effective structure and innovative pricing mechanism, improving the margin, then enhancing ROE. I think it's kind of the sustainable trend 
of the alloy level, I don't foresee alloy be plummeting again into, you know, 3-4% like in the past. But in order to catch up with U.S. and U.K., we need a further more type of the effort, especially our balance sheet management and also innovation and industry reconfiguration. So lots of homework ahead of us, but the silver lining is educational process making a really great impact on the mindset of the corporate executive with help from the kind of shame culture we got to achieve at least 8%. Got it. Y- Yanaki-san, I-, I wanted to touch on one of the articles that you co-wrote, um, which it seems like you- you're uh, referring to or alluding to, um, with Nina Michelle's Kim. Um, it's called Integrating Non-Financials to Create Value. And there you make this really important point, which is that non-financials, uh, there's this distinction between physical or financial capital, um, which is basically the book value, and anything in excess of one times your book value, uh, your capital, um, is uh, is an intangible value. Uh, and so think about intellectual property or human capital or uh, uh, research to some degree. Um, can you talk about that a little bit, um, the, that distinction? Okay, that's a very important point. You know, I have to give the credit to Richard Howitt, CEO of the IIRC, International Integrated Reporting Council, headquartered here in our London. And uh, Richard is actually my one of my best friend and mentor, always supporting me. Actually, he wrote the back cover blurb of my book, recommending uh, my book. And uh, IIRC defined six capitals for, you know, con- consisting uh, corporate value, financial capital. As you said, it's, you know, virtually technically, you know, uh, same as uh, equity book value current financial capital. And the rest of the five non-financial capital could be interpreted as a future financial capital, but current non-financial capital, intangible asset, mainly composed of intellectual capital, human capital, social and relationship capital, manufactured capital, and natural capital. It's very difficult to draw the line uh, between these five non-financial capitals or ESG or CSO. It's combined everything. It's kind of the total intangibles. Or take a look at another way. I would say financial capital is equity book value. And five non-financial capitals are quasi goodwill. If you purchase the company, you got to pay total market cap. But uh, on accounting rate, you can just book equity, book value. Rest of the value is accounted for as a goodwill to be realized by a marginal acquisition. But uh, before marginal acquisition, all the listed company has a kind of market value added. It's called quasi goodwill. That is, is the mission of the current management team to create. And G's, you know, quasi-goodwill is attributable to price book value ratio above one times. So this is added value, and we got to improve that kind of situation or intangible value. Having said that, often these non-financial capitals are undervalued or overlooked because these kind of assets or capital are invisible assets or capital difficult to explain. 
Therefore, as a corporate investor relations officer, this is the most difficult task to explain non-financials to global investors so that、uh, these intangible value are being factored into the actual valuation. Got it. Well, one thing that I do want to talk about、mm. out of this is sort of pull away from maybe the wonky kind of element of it、uh, and talk about the paradox, which even I really struggle trying, trying to, to explain, which is Japanese companies, when it comes to non financial factors,、um, have a reputation, a very good reputation,、um, uh, geared towards integrated reporting. I think.、Uh, Uh, more than 340 companies now、mm. provide integrated reports. And by integrated reports, I mean reports that combine financial metrics,、um, but with a heavy emphasis towards、um, environmental, social, and governance、um, efforts、uh, and metrics.、Um, yet, you, know, you, you would imagine that that effort would be rewarded by the market with a better valuation. Mm. But that doesn't seem to, to be the case at all.、Mm. Uh, you know, it seems like the market is not rewarding it、mm. with a higher price to book、mm. value. Why is that?、Mm. Yeah, you raise a very good point. You know, like I said, value of intangibles or five non financial capitals, as defined by IIRC, should be leading to the market value added. That is a price book above one times. Having said that, Seemingly, Japan has a lot of intangible assets or non financial capitals, traditionally, decent people, social contribution, environmentally friendly attitude. We have a very good society with lots of latent intangible value. Having said that, inconvenient truth is Japan's price book ratio is roughly one times, vis a vis UK two times, US three times. We far lag behind international peers despite allegedly or touted you know, intangible assets or, or non financial capitals. So here's a problem. How can we unlock such intangibles or materialize value of non financial capitals? My value proposition is fourfold. Number one, we should Clarify and disclose model connecting intangible with actual value creation. That is, price book model is、uh, my method. Like I said, equity, you know, price book value ratio one, equity, equity book value is related to financial capital. Price book value ratio above one is called market value added. Which is attributable to five non financial capitals or intangibles. This is a model to you know, connect non financials with financial value. That's number one. Number two, we got to show comparing evidence to that model. For example, I've been actually conducting empirical you know, research. And according to, you know, my,、uh, empirical research conducted by myself and my team with Chuo University, five non-financial capitals as defined by IIRC has a positive correlation coefficient in the amount of 0.3, 0.733 with p-value 
below 1%, meaning that statistical significant data support this kind of model in the case of healthcare sector in Japan. Likewise, we got to accumulate empirical evidence to support such you know,、uh, synchronization model of ESG and ROE. That's number two. Number three, we got to show disclose in our integrated report the concrete example connecting actual ESG or non financial capital into value creation or financial value. For example, take a look at the Ezai case, my company. Ezai, pharma company. You know, filariasis, one of the neglected tropical diseases like malaria or dengue fever, being infected by a mosquito bite. Once you are infected with filariasis, your legs are swelling like an elephant. You cannot move. You cannot walk. You are destined to die with complications. More than 100 million people are suffering from filariasis in Africa, Oceania, South America. However, no one made a drag in the past, despite the fact that many people are dying day in and day out. Why? Because these patients are poorest people in the poorest nations who cannot afford even a penny to purchase the drug. There was no commercial market. That's why no pharma company in the world made a drug, even though they can do that. It's really sad tragedy in accordance with our corporate philosophy contribution to patients. So, Our company, Ezai, stood up, tying up with WHO, offering this filariasis drug called DC 2.2 tablet for free till 2020. Then, beyond that, we promised we'll offer this drug all free of charge until the, we can completely eradicate this tropical disease from the earth. Is this Red Ink Project? Just donation? We are dumping shareholders' money? We got lots of cynical questions from the media at first. But my answer is no. This is not a Red Wing project. This is not a you know, waste of shareholders' money. This is long term investment for creating a shareholders' value on a sustained basis. Why? We are making this drug in a very inexpensive way in our factory in India. 2.2 billion is huge volume, thereby boosting capacity utilization ratio in India. Locally hired Indian employees are getting more skilled and motivated. Then we started production of the cutting edge technology drug like a cancer drug and dementia drug, exporting back to US, Japan, UK, thereby overall profitability is being enhanced from Indian factory. And also after 2020, ESA is planning on making a full fledged foray into such emerging market. At that time, brand value is different. Ramp up curve will be different. As a CFO, I'm running my Excel sheet, calculating net present value. Within 10 years, this is red ink. But within 20 years, this is black ink. We can create value for shareholders on a long term basis. This is concrete example of synchronizing ESG with ROE or actual value creation for shareholders. This kind of comparing example is needed. 
And last not least, number four, we got to have the engagement to gain the trust of long-term shareholders, especially PRI signatories. You know, they tout the, you know, long-term investment, sustainable investing. They would understand my theory like this. So with that, at the end of the day, Japan's intangibles or no financial capital will be fully, you know, factored in the valuation. At that time, we can double the market cap, corporate value. That's my trust and my goal. Great. It's very inspiring to, to be able to circulate that 2.2 billion tablets with、uh, the World Health Organization to、uh, address this issue and do it in a way that really allows you to focus on a 20 year picture rather than the short term profitability picture that, that obviously、uh, m- many managements、uh, cater to, unfortunately. Let me ask you another question.、Um, you, you sit, you, you've had a really unique couple roles in your life. Uh, you've been obviously in investor relations. You've been an academic.、Um, you have been an advisor to the government.、Um, you've also had this,、uh, over the course of your work,、um, this、uh, interaction with、uh, many of the world's largest institutional investors. And now you're the CFO of, of one of the largest Japanese pharmaceutical companies. What's your advice to investors?、Um, where are we getting it wrong? When we think about、uh, whether it's intangibles, whether it's you know, ESG more holistically, what do we need to do better?、Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you very much. And a、uh, little bit looking back at、uh, my personal history, I used to work for UBS as a strategist on the corporate governance you know, back in 2000. At that time, I you know, gathered the global investors' opinion. Uh, in terms of the corporate governance and ESG, pitching that kind of story to the old guard of corporate Japan. At the time, my assertions were totally denied or ignored by you know, ultra senior leaders of corporate Japan. And guess what they say? They say, hey, you are just copying and echoing the voice of foreign shareholders doing nothing. You got to do it by yourself. Corporate executive is a tough job. You know, investment banker is just greedy and making money. And also, there's no evidence to support why corporate governance is important. So, against such a refutation, I made up my mind to do it by myself. Then I changed my career from UBS, you know, corporate governance strategist, into the CFO of the listed pharmaceutical company. I will lead by example, showing the real world evidence as an incumbent CFO, which is very, you know, compelling message to the rest of the corporate Japan. Another one is I've been involved in the academic world more than 10 years as a researcher, educator, accumulating empirical research, writing a book, writing a thesis, very compelling. Evidence to support my assertion of value relevance of corporate governance or ESG. That kind of evidence, you know, a really powerful tool for me to convince Japanese corporate managers. And also on the flip side, kind of great tool for engagement with global investors. Sometimes global investors fall into the short termism. That is,、uh, you know, one of the biggest mistakes in order to. To create value on a sustained basis. 
and also engagement will, you know, make a difference. They can check if corporate management is real or fake. You know, on the surface, Japanese companies are pretty much good at copy and paste attitude as a groupism or a lockstep mentality or a boilerplate disclosure. Don't be cheated. Don't be fooled. You know, you have to dig it out and、uh, check it out if such corporate executives are real or fake. Asking tough questions, engaged, no free riders. You got to fulfill the duty of the stewardship. But with very high level of financial literacy, a lot of global investors are just asking PL cross, you know, questions. Oh, what will be your This, you know, sales forecast this year? What will be your operating profit this year? I have a bunch of questions like that every day in and day out. But very few times I hear the question from investors in conjunction with balance sheet, cash flow, balance sheet management. You got to ask, what is your optimal capital structure? What is your optimal level of cash holdings? Why? What is the rationale behind that? You should ask, what is your assumption of the cost of capital? What is your basis of calculation of your theoretical share price as a listed company? Such kind of the high level of the question are really hard from the global investors. So investors should enhance the level of question with, you know, very sophisticated financial theory. And also back to ESG or intangible You know, global investors should ask the value relevance between ESG and ROE. Not, you know, nowadays, a lot of ESG analysts or investors are springing up, teaming up,、uh, oh, I want a new team of the ESG. Okay, I'm going to send you the questionnaire. Everybody send me the very <laughs> similar kind of the questionnaire. Oh, what is the female ratio in your management team? What is your CO2 levels? What is your, you know, number of outside directors? All same questions. I got a bunch of questionnaires from the ESG analysts who spring, who are spring up very lately. But you got to ask, A little bit more deeper question. How can you connect element of the ESG or intangible with value creation? Like a case of Aza's filariasis drug distributed by WHO. So we need a little bit more in-depth discussion from the, you know, global investor size as well. I am cautiously optimistic given the latent value of intangibles. Uh, great, uh, you know,、uh, financial shape and、uh, commitment of the people. I have the, you know, strong confidence in a bright future. So let's unlock the value together on a sustained basis and wise way. Thank you. That, that's fantastic. There's actually nothing I like doing more than ending a podcast on a note of optimism and confidence. <laughs>、um, look, it's been fascinating to hear about Dr. Ryohei Yanagi's new book, Corporate Governance and Value Creation in Japan,、uh, published by Springer, and that's out now.、Um, the benefits of long termism versus short termism, and what Japan itself is doing to set a higher standard of stewardship and corporate behavior domestically. So I'd like to thank. 
uh, you, Yanagi-san, for your time and uh, uh, words today. Really, really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Jason. Uh, it's my great honor, and you're like, uh, you know, like-minded people. Thank you. Excellent. Uh, I'm Jason Mitchell, here with Yanagi-san. Many thanks for joining us on Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. Bye. You're listening to Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us. And special thanks to everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash responsible dash investment or look for us on iTunes.